Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 140. Today's guest name is John Garudi, and I really enjoyed this episode because John was in a family business, and there was a lot of different experiences that he shared that I could totally relate to. And so anybody that's in a family business where they are the parent who wants to know what is it like in the perspective of potentially their kids, great episode to listen to. If you are a second gen and you're going to be taking over the business, this is also a great episode. And anybody that just wants to know what is it like when you don't have great communication and a crystal clear vision, because there can just be things that are not optimized. And what John is on the show today to share is what it was like having a disconnected dad and aunt who were running the business to him, what it was like having stagnant growth and really just dealing with the drama of having little communication and understanding and then getting dragged through a two-year process to sell the business. And eventually when the business ended up selling, John had to work for the buyer for 12 months before getting so sick of it that he just had to leave. So I just Really loved this episode because the authenticity that John portrayed and how challenging it was, just the emotional turmoil that can bubble to the top when there is a ton of family, emotions, relationships, and if you don't have crystal clear accountability and expectations, then everybody only knows what to do, and that is emotions and fending for themselves and having conflict. So I just really hope that out of this episode, your big takeaway is This is the reality of what a lot of businesses experience if they don't have good communication and line up exactly what everybody wants so that way everybody can have very clear expectations of what to expect from each other. So with that being said, I really hope you enjoy this interview with John. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. John, how you doing? Doing great, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing good. I am pumped for uh, this episode because you and I had a lot of stuff in common as what it was like selling <laughs> family businesses, working in them, and then uh, working for uh, the, few, the the new employer and just all the trials and tribulations that you put your, yourself through and the torture that you uh, that you self-select for in a family business. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. A lot of parallels in our, in our paths. <laughs> So let's go back. Um, and you and I were even uh, rallying when we first met about like, what, like, how did you become an entrepreneur? What was the, like, where did you get hooked on business? And, and what was the, the kind of the origination story of the family business? Yeah. So the origin is, you know, we, um, my father and his father started the business together back in 1978. And they got into the business because my grandfather was a tile contractor. So he used to do work all around New York City, Queens. And eventually he started his own tile store right on Northern Boulevard in Queens, like the main thoroughfare. Did that for a while. And that was, um, you know, my father like grew up in that business. Um, I think when he was younger, maybe 13, 14, he was working with my grandfather, selling tile. And uh, at the same time, they still had a contracting leg of their business. So 
you know, they did that for quite a while. I'm not sure how long, maybe 10, 15 years. And I know my father, when he became maybe 25, 26, he just kind of got tired of that lifestyle because contracting work, it is obviously very laborious and um, <laughs> put some wear and tear on the knees. And it's, it's hard work, even though it's a great business. Uh, so they were trying to figure out, well, what, what can we do that's different? And I guess they came to realize like they had such great connections and already knew so many contractors in the area. They came up with the idea to start making the setting materials. So they bought a little shop that's actually right across from where City Field is, where the Mets play back in uh, 78. And um, they started making epoxies uh, for, because that was the, that was the setting material of choice at the time. Mm-hmm. And from there, um, you know, they actually right out of the bat did very well due to all the connections they had. And um, from there, it grew into, you know, the big business we had when, uh, before we exited back in November of 2017. What did you start getting involved in the business? Oh, man, even, you know, even in high school, I was <laughs> right. involved. I was always coming in and just... Because yeah, I, I was always transient, so my father would like be picking me up from wherever. He'd bring me back to the office so he could finish working for the day, and <laughs> I would help out, do whatever. Um, so even in high school, I was helping with just you know the normal office tasks like filing and doing some computer work, maybe. But um, I really got started getting involved in college. Um, basically, every summer, you know, every summer I worked. Um, at the business and you know I first I think the first jobs I really did was customer service I helped up there with like the logistics and the scheduling of the trucks and taking orders you know entering them into the just the best part of everything right (laughs) yeah exactly Um, so really just the front end yeah how big big was the business then John when I back in uh, my college days yeah 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 we ha- I think we topped out at around 45 employees and, you know, our best year, we did 13 million in revenue. It's a good, good size business. So did you like when you're, what, what were you going to college for? And then did you intend to, to join the business or was it just kind of a uh, happenstance? Yeah, it was happenstance. <laughs> I, I went to college originally for, to learn engineering. I mean, I got into Virginia tech, which is a great engineering school, but I, uh, learned that engineers work too hard and I couldn't party as much. So I gave that up for business. <laughs> oh, the yeah. business degree, that is the catch all for someone that likes to be social and do some work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I did business. And then at that time I graduated in 2006 in May and I worked in insurance for a year, which I just, I really did not enjoy at all. And um, that was down in DC. I moved back to New York after that. Um, Because I wasn't sure what I was going to do. So I I started looking for a job once I moved back. And, you know, in the interim, I was just working at the family biz because I needed something to do. And that's actually the time when, like, the recession started hitting. And it was just impossible to find a job at that time. And, you know, unfortunately, I didn't really take my, my life and my career too serious when I was 22. I mean, I never did any internships or whatnot. And I think all that detracted from my ability to get a good job. So I just kept working at the family business and no job came along. You know, the recession hit. And then it just, at that time, I was 
full on in the business. And I said, let's just uh, continue this. And my father agreed. And that's how it kind of worked out. So, and what was the, what, what any other family members? I can't, I can't remember exactly. Cause there was you, your dad, what other family members, what was the ownership structure like? And what was the, what was the, the inner workings and the, the dynamics? Yeah. So my, when my father and his father started the business, they were 50, 50. And then when my grandfather passed in 91, he left half of his shares to my dad and half of the other half to his daughter, my aunt. So when I was in the business, yeah, my dad owned 75%. My aunt owned 25%. Uh, my aunt was entirely in charge of the sales and marketing. My father really, you know, looked over all the, all the manufacturing, all the product development, the operations. And, you know, family dynamics-wise were interesting. It was... Um, what were some know, of the biggest I, challenges? Yeah, you know, it was... For me, I, you know, I always wanted to just work on growing the business. And I think that's where I kind of got in a lot of, um, you know, stalemates with my father is that the business, the whole time I was there from 2007 to 2018, I mean, we didn't grow at all. No new revenue. It was like, we just basically flatlined for 10 years straight. Um, you know, the first few years I was getting comfortable in the business and learning it. So I wasn't really pushing it, but by about year four or five, I was like, hey, you know, it's time to switch things up here, obviously, right? We're not growing. Um, something's got to change. And, you know, to me, um, it was very hard to work on the sales and marketing end because my aunt and my father's relationship was very strained, especially in the business. They just, I don't know, they didn't work well together. That's for sure, in my opinion. You know, my father was very, you know, he was... I don't want to say like a dictator, but it was like, you know, when he wanted something, it was just, he would demand it and that would be it. And you couldn't really ever get him to change his opinion. And I think for my <laughs> aunt, like that was very tough for her because she wanted to do things with the sales and marketing. And if like he didn't agree, he would just flat out tell her no. And so I think, it, you know, her feelings were always like being touched. It was very, you know, in that respect, it was always emotional for her. And for him, and I think a lot of that contributed to like the us not really growing because she had complete control of over sales and marketing. Like she did what she wanted to do, and he had complete control over operations. And there was just always like this divided line between the two, right? Sales and marketing was always saying, "Oh, these operation people are messing up," and then all the operations people are saying, "Oh, well, these sales and marketing people aren't doing shit." So it just. <laughs> You know, it was kind of like I, I referred to it as like the wheel of uh, the wheel of death. You know, we were just like spinning there, going nowhere with the same bullshit, just flying. How were you doing? The, like, what was like the like what were the conversations like with the people? And like, like, I mean, was it like a clear divide that people were just kind of almost taking sides? And like, where were you stuck in it? And like, how did like where was your head at? Yeah, honestly, my head at certain times, I just like almost wanted to give up and. I mean, I practically did give up. You know, we had we had a few key operational people, maybe three or four, and then you know the rest were really just factory workers. Um, and then sales, we had you know my aunt, and then she had three or four sales guys at all times. So it was really the the top people in the you know when we had like our executive meetings, it would be me, 
the COO, my father, my aunt, and like the guy in the who was kind of in charge of the factory operations. So those meetings, oh my God, they were terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I would come in and I just, I, most of the time I would daze out because my aunt would always fight with the, uh, the COO. Like they would just, it was like a chicken fight, dude. They were going back and forth, squawking at each other. And it was all about like trying to, I guess, be like impressive to my father who would just eventually sit there and then like, you know, snap and be like, shut up. And <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's go to the next point. But, um, very, you know, our culture was really, it just wasn't the right culture. At least I didn't appreciate it because a lot of just infighting and too much, you know, too much of people pointing the finger, blaming each other for what's not going right in the company. What was the conversations that you were and your dad were having? Like, what, I mean, did you like, was there any intentions of you buying it? Were there conversations about like what the company's worth or how to buy out your aunt? I mean, was, or was it just like this future hope that that conversation would happen? We had those conversations. I mean, you know, I didn't even want to necessarily buy out my aunt. I just, my whole stance with her was like, you know, she's, she's not the right person to be managing our sales team. That was always my quip. And he would agree with that. But you know, the, actually acting upon that was too emotional for him and he could never pull that trigger. Um, you know, the whole intent though, you know, my father only wanted me to take over the business and I did for a long time. I really did. But I felt like, you know, if he couldn't get over this one issue of like, you know, figuring out something to do with her that wasn't running the sales, you know, like how am I ever going to be able to take this company and change it? Mm -hmm. Well, so you were you actually running the bit like were you getting to the point where you running a lot of the business then or was it just the conversations of like you had you mentally were like I could do this but then it was, the the hurdles were too big. Yeah, mentally I was there and I was running the business. I mean, I was by the time we sold, I was involved in every area. Mm -hmm. I was doing sales. I was running the marketing. You know, I built the new websites we had. I'm still in operations and I, and I grew up in the factory. I mean, I learned how to make all the products. I learned the chemistry. I, I built our quality control systems. I learned how to run all the machinery. I did everything except like drive the delivery trucks. <laughs> I never got a commercial license. <laughs> um, so I certainly had the skills, but it's, um, you know, that emotions of, telling family members like, Hey, you're not the right person for this job. It just, we, we could never get past that. And my father would admit to me like, yeah, your aunt is probably not the right person to run in sales. So my reply was like, okay, so what do we do about this? Uh, you know, she's family. We, we're obviously not going to kick her to the curb, but this ain't working. So what, so what do we do? But you know, that was where it ended with, uh, you know, that conversation, it was just way too emotional. He couldn't get past the emotion of, of changing her role um, and, and sticking to it. So then, uh, in that sequence of time, like you know, when uh, you know you're you're probably dealing with some fatigue at that point, going, okay, what in the hell's the 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 situation and the and the solution for this? Did you guys talk to consultants, family business consultants, or was there anybody that you were reaching out to, or and, and what was the whole triggering event to to entertaining an offer? So, well, the whole offer came down to me eventually going to my father and saying, I'm sick of this shit. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you don't want to change anything in the business. And, you know, for me, I felt like part of the reason he wanted me to take it over was so that like he could still 
like kind of be in the business, which, you know, I get and appreciate, but like you can't empower somebody to take over a business and then, you know, make them, you know, kind of keep their arms cuffed, handcuffed. That's what I felt like. Mm-hmm. He wanted to empower me while keeping me handcuffed. <laughs> Quote know? unquote empowered, right? <laughs> right, exactly. And that's not empowering. And um, I think I think he did that even too, even as well to my aunt. Like at times he tried to empower her, but, you know, at the same time he's, you know, giving her the direction, of authoritative direction. And so eventually, yeah, I just, I, it was, I just felt like I, there was no out. I felt like there was nowhere to go. And so I went to him and, I think August 2015, and I was just like, you know what? If you can't change the things that you know that need to be changed in this business, then I don't want to be part of it. What What was his reaction, and how? And like, how did you? And how how did you feel going into that conversation? Oh, it was like the toughest conversation of my life at the time, and I think he was very hurt by it because um, you know I think for him he built this whole thing so one day I could take it over and continue, you know, running it. And so the entire family could continue benefiting from it because it was a great business and it didn't make great money, but it just, uh, you know, that wasn't me. And and honestly, it wasn't even about control for me. Like I didn't need to be in charge of the business and making all the decisions. Like I just wanted to have a team that was out there kicking ass, taking no prisoners and growing the thing and you know putting us on the right track to continually grow because there was certainly opportunity to do it but you know we we needed a lot of change and that's where it, you know that was like the sticking point to me was there you know in your dad's or your aunt's like not wanting to change was there was there any challenges that you guys had about like them not wanting to reinvest in the business or was it more just like challenges on the vision i well we didn't even have a vision that's number one and reinvesting. Yeah. That was another point because I, you know, I think we all realized, you know, we were doing a lot of manual processes at at the company that, you know, if you look at it now, the company that took over, they've automated the business and dropped like, you know, they've already dropped about 30% of the labor force we had. So we were always looking at doing those investments you know, we needed that because we were making commodities. So we always had to find ways to cut down the cost. And that was the next step. But, you know, my father never wanted to go there because he never felt like he could get the return because we weren't driving the sales. You know, the investments we needed in our business were, at least from a factory and automation perspective, were probably close to $2 million to do it the right way. So the payback on that, he just, he didn't see the payback ever. In his in his span of his timeline, right? Yeah, exactly. And or with the way the sales was going, and us just flatlining mm-hmm. year after year. I think you said circle of death, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what was the what like what was the and actually even before like you went down the process of actually explaining it. So you had this conversation with dad. Was there anything like, Hey, you know, I don't know if you guys had heard of the book traction or EOS at that point, or like reached out to family business consultants. I remember I tried everything. <laughs> and so like, yeah. you know, and my dad and I, like it, we, ours was more on the tactical stuff of, which is why I've got the business now, about how they like grow and sell, but it was more tactical, less, I mean, trust me, there was plenty of emotions and tons of yelling and management meetings, but then that kind of worked itself over time. But, was there any family business consultants that you brought in or any of these other resources that you had wanted to go down the route of before deciding to sell? 
Yeah, I tried to bring in EOS twice with uh, two different guys who were certified. Um, Both guys my father liked and I liked, and I think even my aunt liked. um, And we were all in agreement we should do this, but my father wouldn't pull the trigger. Um, I think, too, I I brought a guy in, I I think, very close to that. I I think I brought a guy in right after I told him I didn't want to stay. And then what happened was he just, he, he wouldn't commit at that time because we had already found the buyer and the negotiations had already begun. And so he's like, I don't see the point in, uh, got it. John, what was the, what was that process? Like, did you guys hire an investment banker? Did you guys start making phone calls? What was the kind of the setup for that? You know, it was actually kind of lucky. We, after I had that conversation with my father, his first move was like, all right, you know, if this is your decision, let me hire an investment banker so I can figure out what my options are and the best way to proceed. So, he, yeah, he hired a guy out of New York. And then... How did you pick him? Um, I'm not sure. My father was introduced to him through a mutual friend. Um, so that's how we found him. And then, oddly enough, the buyer who called us out of the blue, because we had a mutual customer out of Brooklyn... And I guess, you know, this company that bought us, they were going on an M&A tear, just trying to find, you know, anybody they can to increase their market share. And we had a very uh, strategic position being inside of New York City. Um, Not a single competitor of ours was inside of New York City. And nowadays to go invest and try to build a factory in New York City, it's it's not worth it for anybody. Yeah. (laughs) So I guess through, you know, their, my, my uh, client and, you know, the buyer, through their mutual conversations, they were talking about it. And our customers said, oh, well, you should talk to uh, the Garudis because they've got a great business. And the buyer, you know, did the same exact things. We're making the same exact products we were. Um, so he literally called them like, it was literally like one week I told my father I don't want to do this. <laughs> Next week he had an investment banker. And then the week after these people called out of the blue to be like, hey, what's going on? Uh, would you be open to talking? So, yeah, all that kind of, you know, that had to be uh, fate just <laughs> coming around. Um, very lucky that it all happened so fast. Walk us through the process then, John. So are you were you guys pissed that you had hired the banker because of the commissions? Or like what was the... I mean, did you get other buyers involved and what was your expectation and your role in that whole process? Yeah. So we weren't pissed we hired the banker because I think, you know, we didn't know, obviously just that one person calling out of the blue, we didn't know if that would work out. And, you Mm -hmm. know, we realized if we were going to do this, we had to be serious and go out and find multiple buyers. Mm -hmm. Um, So we weren't concerned about that. And, but at that time it's, you know, we got into conversations right away with that initial buyer. So at first, it seemed like we were going to do a deal in like two months, We were gonna, and we would be part of this new company, it all of kosher. But then once we got into the due diligence, um, <laughs> you know, obviously the disagreements came there on the asking price. I mean, they wanted us from the get-go. There was, they were clear about that. Um, they had already showed that hand. But, you know, then it was, uh, you know, coming to terms. Um, and I guess, you know, our EBITDA wasn't where they wanted it to be to meet the price my father was looking for the business. So that happened all super fast. Like, it, it was like we were going to sell in two months. And then, 
then I, I remember it being like January, February, and it's like, okay, the deal's off. And I'm like, shit. <laughs> so it, it walk us through that because, um, you know, a lot of the listeners and, and especially what, as we get to like what you're doing now too, but um, like due diligence cannot be underestimated because <laughs> well, yeah. it, it just, it like literally is a full colonoscopy. I mean, it is like something that people uh, explain what that process was like. And then, and I'm in, even before you go into that, John, like how did your dad come up with the value of the company that he wanted? And then how did that change as due diligence happened? And what were the red flags happening? Yeah. You know, I'm not sure how he came up with the number. I mean, I just, I think he knew what he wanted and um, I'm sure he spoke with the investment banker to get a, Mm -hmm. you know, a feel. I mean, we knew this buy that buyer, we, we should be able to get a premium for multiple reasons. Um, not just that we did everything uh, they do, but, um, you know, we were a perfect strategic fit. But that location we have in New York and that distribution in New York City, I mean, you couldn't really put a price tag on that. Um, so... So then, most, sorry, what was the other question? Though? I was going to say, then in the due diligence, because I yeah. think so many times people... Like, okay, we got this, and I don't know, like we got this letter of intent. Okay, we, we, want, we, want, we want to go down this route and then due diligence starts. Um, so explain what that process was like. What was your involvement in that? And then honestly, I'm just curious, man, like what did you, like where was your head at? Because when I was going through it, my dad and I had to have some very hard conversations about, because I, technically I had no equity, but like I was running the business. And so like we had to like sit down and work out how, how I was going to get paid. And so we ended up working that out, but it was a lot of hard conversations because it was, you know, I was bringing significant value to everything. And in a normal circumstance, I would have had equity, you know, had we gone down <laughs> done all the right things. But yeah. like, so how did you guys do it? Or was, was it something where like you were so ready to be done that it was just like, I'll just get this done and then I'll just go work somewhere else? Like, what, what, so, and how did that impact your head as you were going through the due diligence process? Yeah, I mean, I as we were going through it, I mean, I was just, you know, looking for the next opportunity. <laughs> That's really all I was concerned about. I mean, I would come during the day and the due diligence was like so deep, man. We, I, I just remember, you know, pulling out report after report after report, financial reports, inventory reports, you know, customer reports. I had a, you know, and the crazy thing was I felt like I had to, redo the reports time after time, like in different ways for different people in their company. Um, it was a lot of work for sure. Um, and at the same time, we were very cautious about what we showed them. So like they wanted to see like a top 10 customer report. So we gave it to them, but we left out the customer name because we were like, we don't want to show you who these people are there. Because you can get them, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And at the time we were competing with you guys. So we did um, the same thing, John, like, and, and it's yeah. so crazy because like there talk about a fine dance that um for the listeners like when you're selling to a strategic competitor i mean like you know even though they might be great people there's just the nature of all of a sudden now they have your customer list and like we i swear to god man like there was like people that started popping up onto our accounts while we were going through the process <laughs> yeah that happened to us too so um the big thing was so we had two main product lines we had the tile setting and then we had the stucco um, so our, our buyer was big in the stucco in the New York City area, but they had no uh, presence whatsoever in the tile setting. 
Um, and I remember in those early stages of due diligence, they wanted to go out and, you know, they went out with the sales team, met a few customers, and then, yeah, sure enough, you know, next thing we know, one of our, our customers is buying from them. <laughs> we were like, really? Are you, are you, is this a joke? But um, that, is, that does happen, and you certainly got to be wary of it if, it's, uh, if you are going to sell to, like, a competitor or... What were some of the things that happened in the due diligence that caught you by surprise that impacted their their terms and conditions and price? It just, you know, the negotiation was arduous. It just was back and forth, back and forth. Um, the person who was responsible for the M&A on that side, he was, um, you know, just to give you a little more context, the company bought us as a global company. Um, they do business in 25 countries and you know, over a billion dollars in sales worldwide. So he, he, this guy's in charge of North and South America, right? He's, he's like literally one step removed from the worldwide CEO. So this guy was like such a tough negotiator. Um, but at the same time, I don't think he realized how tough my father was. <laughs> they would have these back and forth, back and forth on just like every single point had to be like argued out and revisited multiple times because um, my father you know god bless him on this end he did not give an inch i think these people you know they they just thought they, they they've got this air about them that they think they're just like i don't even know how to describe it very big egos right um and i'm just picturing your dad some guy first you know first generation entrepreneur from queens man i just like yeah <laughs> and, and yeah it was it was crazy just the back and forth and i think what just threw me off not that it even threw me off it was just so draining was the you know one week it looks like it's going through and then you know my father and this guy would get in like a tad and then you know the deal would be off for like another month um, and then, yeah, that was, it was just back and forth, back and forth for. How long did that go on for? You said that the, the deal was pulled off and then what, what brought it back on? What was the, like the total time cycle? The whole time, it took two years and the whole two years Holy we were, shit. we were talking back and forth, back and forth. Um, you know, that initial, I, I'd say maybe around September of 2017, we had the, or 2015, we had those initial talks. By uh, February or March, my father actually made an announcement to the whole company that the deal's off for now. Doesn't mean it can't come back because a lot of people at this time now were getting frantic. The employees were concerned because they didn't know what was going to happen to them. Why did you guys tell them to begin with? Nobody told them, but then they found out and, yep. you know, some other stupid things happened. Like, you know, they came and visited the plant and my father, um, you know, was dishonest about who was coming to visit the plant. But, you know, he told the, the guys in the factory to shape up, make sure everything's clean and whatnot. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so they come and visit. And sure enough, um, the, the chemist we hired knew the operations guy from oh my the god fire. totally so, yeah yeah <laughs> so then he tells everybody on the factory floor and like all the managers down there are now freaking out and you know then of course we're a small company so now everybody you know all 30 40 people know and they're talking about this and are you know obviously it's it's certainly fair for them to be concerned about what's going to happen next um, but then, you know, they were not trusting my father because he just like, you know, he, did he didn't you, want anybody to know, which I, which I totally understand and get. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, th then, you know, he compounded the issue by lying to these like, you know, these top 
uh, managers in the company about the situation. So that didn't go well. How, how did, like, where, what role did you play in that? Were you, were you the, the cleanup guy for the, the drama or what was your role? Yeah, I just, you know, I kind of tried to stay out of it. I just was doing what I needed to do because we needed to keep running the company regardless. So I was just, you know, focused on doing my work. And, um, you know, when I was needed to do stuff for the diligence, I would get involved. It's tough, man. Like, it's tough to, like, even be passionate when you got a two-year roller coaster like that. I mean, I, we went on and off for a couple of years. I mean, but it was in the short spurts. It wasn't, like, the long drawn out thing but it's just and i think this is for any of the listeners man like when you have your key executives if they're not tied into like the the final outcome i mean it, it's a, an emotional mental like nuclear war in your head <laughs> yeah absolutely and um yeah it was just the the how emotional it was was like the toughest part to deal with because you just i just wanted it to be over i wanted to be done i wanted to be out of that company and on to doing my own thing and uh there was just dragging on and dragging on and to explain the closing Dan, like as you, if you, like, you finally get to this closing like what was the like explain how that was closed what was your role going to be into it i mean like did they have some sort of like clause that they wanted you and the key executives i mean like what was the 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 next phase and the closing phase the, the closing phase and the next phase like yeah so well one of the things that was argued up to the last point was um you know keeping the executives there, my, you know, my father, my father did not want to stay. He made that very clear that like once, once the check is signed and the, you know, the deal is executed, I'm out of here. I'm not staying. I'm not helping you transition. I'm not doing any sort of consulting for you guys. I'm done. So then, you know, they obviously going through this, they knew some people had to stay on. So it wound up being me and the COO, and actually everybody in the company stayed on at first. Um, it really, my father was the only one who left. So, but uh, my father negotiated a contract for me and my aunt and the COO, a year contract, because um, you know he didn't want us to like have nothing out of nowhere or get, you know, kind of get screwed like these people who obviously could have come in and done whatever they wanted at that time, but. That was a big negotiating point because um, they didn't like that for some reason. Um, they fought about those those contracts for a long time. That that probably was three or four months of the actual negotiation. Was then not wanting one or all of you guys, or was yeah? It I think it, it was honestly we were like top heavy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, going back to some of the things I would have changed. We definitely had too many managers. And, you know, we had too many people who just had no value in the company, at least in my eyes. So I think they kind of recognized that coming in. They're like, well, why do you have a, you know, we had a plant manager, a director of operations, a COO. Like I had like a weird title that was operations. Um, I don't even remember. I think I was like vice president of operations. So, okay, you got like five <laughs> operations manager in a company with like 35 people. Um, <laughs> I'm sure they were like, this makes no sense whatsoever. And of course, they also had a way they liked to structure each business. Because really, when we got rolled into them now, we were just a plant in their network. Explain what that was like. I mean, so what was integration like? How was it like, you know, what was the, the, what was the strategy and what was it like working for them? Yeah, so I just, I remember, I think we signed the papers on the Thursday. That Friday, they all came in. 
you know, we met with the entire company and my father just made the announcement, said goodbye, literally got in the car and drove down to Florida. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> and then I had to, that weekend, we had to do inventory um, to reconcile the deal. And from that point on, they, you know, their director of operations was there, um, you know, mainly work, working with me. And then, you know, the sales guys were working with my aunt and even the uh, COO, he was kind of doing a lot. He was like reporting to the, the CEO. But at that point on, they wanted me to be the plant manager and help transition, um, you know, our company into just re like really being an operational plant in their, in their network. So it was, uh, it was a lot of hard work at first, man, because we first, so this happened in November. The first thing to do was move to their ERP system. So this was, um, and they, they wanted this done by January 1st. So oh I'm sure you know how crazy ERP implementation. Yeah, I've done a couple of them myself. So we had to take our whole system and, you know, transplant it into theirs in two months. It was insane. <laughs> right. <laughs> we were working, I was working like, you know, 12 hour days those first few weeks, um, just because there was so much to prepare, while at the same time trying to get people up to snuff on their systems, while trying to, you know, reorganize to how they like to run the plants. Um, it was a lot of work and it was interesting at first because it was, you know, for me, I had never really worked in any company outside of the family business. So, you know, I did enjoy that part and we made a lot of progress. We actually got that implementation done on January 1st. Oh my gosh. We were there. I remember like that first week in January, man, I was there like, again, like 14 hours a day because we had to make sure everything was running, processing correctly, double checking everything and wall. And we were, we were always running the factory at that time about 10, 10 to 12 hours a day. So that was a lot. Um, what was the, what was the culture like? I mean, did they have to, they didn't do ma any major layoffs and was there fallout and resentment happening to you? Yeah. I mean, everybody in the company blamed me for, you know, the business being sold, but I think, Honestly, like, you know, I looked at the factory workers. I don't think they really care because at the end of the day, they just wanted their jobs, which they got to retain. There's more of the upper managers, some of the people who've been with my father, you know, for a long time, like 20, 30 years. But I think because they realized, like, they were probably the most likely targets to get removed. And, you know, they, that's actually what happened. They weren't wrong. And, how long I think you? at the same time, though, they, a lot of those people were super comfortable where they are working with my father. Um, and But, you know, those were like the people I wanted to get rid of because I didn't see the value they were bringing to the company, right? Yep. So did at any point in that time, John, did you have any regrets of not wanting to take it over? Um, to be honest, no. You know, I felt, I felt bad for a lot of people because, you know, eventually we did wind up laying um, – laying off some of the workforce as we introduced the automation. And, um, I, you know, I, it was tough for some of the people who had worked there for, you know, I had, a, I had to lay off a guy who worked for my grandfather and my father for like 35 years. So that one sucked. Um, you know, that guy probably hates my guts now. I'm sure he'll never talk to me again. And I felt bad for some of the factory workers too, because most, honestly, most of our factory workers were like migrants. You know, living here on visas and just having those factory jobs is so meaningful for them because a lot of them were from like the Dominican Republic and 
they were able to work here, you know, make money, live, and still send money back to their families. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and honestly, we have pretty good loyalty with our employees. I mean, everybody, I'd say 90% of the company had, you know, at that time had been working with us for at least like 15, 20 years. Jeez. Wow. Yeah. Um, like, it's tough. Like, like Yeah. That's not fun. No, that's for sure. It's and that I mean I get a stomachache even thinking about it because I had to go through the same thing. And what you know, where was your head at? Like, how long did you stay with them? And what was the new culture, man? Like, what was it like being uh, an employee for someone else? Yeah, well, I stayed with them for the year because that was what my contracts was for, and you know, I wanted to obligate that because I I still have to have a relationship with the company. Um, Culture-wise, it was hard to get a feel for it at first because you know they had a core team of people who was at the plant i mean literally the first 12 weeks there was people from the headquarters there working with us every day to get us transition so you know working with some of those people was was nice because they were like the top people in the company and um they, most of them were pretty sharp but you know as time went on and as we kind of as things normalized that's when i I got a feel for the culture, and it was, um, I, you know, I felt like the culture at the, that their company was like worse than the com culture my my own family had. Um, yeah, in in what in what way? Very, um, it was just very unorganized. People, what drove me nuts was there were all these people in high level positions who were just lazy and like didn't work get the job done. I mean, I was working my ass off every day for the people because I wanted to and. Then, you know, as plant manager, now my role was to be like a liaison between the plant and the headquarters in California. So I had to work with every damn director of every different department, <laughs> um, you know, director of HR, director of operations, director of R&D, director of, you know, the various sales departments. You know, the CEO would send me stuff to do as well and just, you know, these people were made, these directors like had to coordinate all their work across eight plants in the US. Um, while I also had to coordinate now with plants on the East Coast because I was bringing up raw materials from some of these other plants or I was bringing up finished goods now. Working with the plant managers was actually pretty easy. But then when you get these like directors involved, it's just like the communication just like broke down. And I saw a lot of people just siloing information, you know, poor, poor planning, poor executing. And then it's like, it felt like everything, they, they threw it back at the plant managers. Like, you know, why did this go wrong? And then it's like the directors are just sitting up on a podium saying, oh, yeah, they fucked up, not me. Mm -hmm. um, and and it, it's hard to gauge what's going on because, you know, I never even went to that headquarter office in California. So I don't know what's going on there, and but you hear stories from people, right? Um, so overall, I think they just, uh, you know, the culture just was not high performing. It was not dynamic, and then we had this influence of the, you know, being a global company based out of France. We had all this influence from like the main guys in France. So <laughs> you know, they would come down to the plant in New York and just see things and tell, you know, say, I want this, this, and this fixed. <laughs> the directors of the U.S. would be like, you know, they would just, you know, appease them and say, yeah, we take care of it. And then, you know, once they leave, be like, don't, they'd tell me, don't do that. Don't oh listen to that guy. 
I'm like, well, all right, well, I'm just going to listen to my direct bosses. I mean, you know, that's the kind of stuff that was going on left and right. And it's just like, you know, how, how can this company go anywhere or grow? I mean, th their whole strategy was like M&A, which is, of course, a great strategy if, you, if you've got the cash. But then, you know, where's the organic growth? I didn't see them growing that way just because of all this, um, you know, the poor culture they have. Well, and it's funny, I, there's actually a, a couple of interviews that I've done where when they say that the integration isn't done correctly, like a, kind of what you're just describing is most people, they, like most people that acquire companies don't get the return on an investment that's above and beyond their cost of capital because they have no idea how to integrate the company yeah. into the actual big machine. What was your dad doing? Like, like what was your conversations with him? like afterwards and a little bit of context i remember when i i quit the company because i lasted like i think a little over 60 days um at the acquirer and he's like i'm just so happy i don't have to talk about our industry anymore because <laughs> yeah. like he didn't even want to talk, even though he loves me and like we're friends and he's like i just don't want to talk about it anymore <laughs> but what was the what was the dialogue going on with you two and like were, was it cordial i mean you guys like what was the whole relationship yeah, no, it was cordial. I mean, I would tell him what was going on, and he was interested. And of course, he had a vested interest because that you know that plant we still own it as a family. So you know, he was just checking up on me to make sure nothing was uh, getting damaged. But um, you know, I, I would tell him stuff that was you know driving me nuts, and you know, he'd say, "Listen, just hang in there. You got the contract. You know, fulfill the contract." It's, keep our relationship positive with these people and you know when it's done do what you want to do so, so, so you guys kept the building then is that what yeah we still own the building that they're operating out of so so then i'm curious in if you don't know it's not a big deal i'm just curious like as you guys are going through that due diligence john and then like the different things are coming up do you know like the deal structure you don't have to give any terms uh, or actually any pricing but like was it like yeah. Was it cash? Was there like, was there earnouts or promissory notes or anything tied to it? Yeah. So there was just, uh, I think we got something like 80% of the cash up front. And then there was a 5% payout at 12 months, another 5% at 18 months. And then I think at 24 months, there's uh, the remaining balance will be paid out. And, so, you know, but yeah, in, t in terms of like guarantees, though, the amount of guarantees that were written in this contract were like silly. Um, they had guarantees over every little single thing. And this was another thing we argued um, because they just, you know, for them, they didn't want to, obviously, right, when you buy any business, it's about the transferability. Um, and I think that they had some previous MAs that just went like really bad for them. So they probably learned from those hiccups, but for the most part, everything got fulfilled. I mean, we didn't lose, you know, they've got no, no right to come at us for anything. So can you explain in, in, the, the transferabilities or I'm sorry, the, uh, the guarantees that you were talking about and like, do you know if it was a stock or an asset sale? Um, we actually had to do a combination sale just for tax purposes. And this was again, another thing that was argued. Um, Cause I think, I don't remember which was more beneficial for them. I, I think it's the the asset sales usually what's more more beneficial for yeah, them. Yeah, so they wanted more of an asset sale, and I think we wanted more of a stock sale. So we had to like come to terms on like what was stock and what was asset. Um, that was another thing that tied up the negotiation. 
and for the listeners and, and also for as you're as you're doing deals too it's like it the the buyer wants the the stock or um, wants the uh the asset purchase because they can depreciate it and all the liabilities stay with the the seller but then it's ordinary income for the seller versus capital gains if it's a stock so there's like immediate tensions that people have off the get-go in the equations right so you know what was that like how did you get to the point where you're like did you was it like 12 months in one day or like what was the what was your your game plan as you were going forward um i just honestly after about six months i was like all right i'm not i'm not sticking on for this any longer um i knew at like 12 months i was going to um resign and i i, I part, part of my um salary i had like a 20 percent bonus if i stayed the entire year so i was like okay literally like the day they paid me the bonus i that was the day I put in my two week notice. But actually, mm-hmm. um, I had it all planned, but sorry, actually what, what did happen though was they, they actually really liked me and wanted me to stay in the company and continue working and maybe move up to like where I became a regional manager and had a few plants under me. And so I remember just being in this meeting with the, uh, the CEO and the, the director of operations of the USA um, and it was like about six weeks out from my, my, the end of my contract. And they were talking about all these great big plans they had for me and what they wanted me to be focused on, yada, yada, yada. And I'm just like, there at me and thinking, I'm like, well, I'm not even going to be doing any of this. And it made me feel terrible. So right after that meeting was over, um, I remember the CEO went down to the hall to, to an office and I just followed him right in there. And I said, yeah, I'm not staying. Um, I don't want you to be making all these plans and thinking I'm going to be the guy to do all those things because I'm not, you know, I'd rather tell you now, you know, so you guys can um, start preparing. But, you know, when my contract's up, I'm out of here. Um, And he was actually, you know, they were upset because they did want me to to continue, but he was appreciative that I approached him and and told him because he said, especially for plant managers, that's an important position for them. You know, he said, the more time you give us, the better, because um, it's it, it can be very challenging if in that role or really any role if you just drop off and leave, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, so it, that's how it went down. Yeah, the director of operations, yeah, I mean, the director of operations was upset because I think he was, you know, he had mentored me a bit, and he was a very good guy. I enjoyed uh, working with him a lot, but. You know, I think I, I kind of put a, a gap in his plan as well that he now had to figure out how to fill. So, so John, if you if you like look back at your whole journey working in the family business and the the the, the actual exit and sale, is there like, you know, for the listeners, like, is there anything that you'd say like this is what I would have done differently, or here's you know now going through it eyes wide open, here's what I would look out for, or you know expect, or you know something to be be cautious of well you know if i look back at it i feel like the only thing i could have maybe done better was um you know maybe before wanting to leave the company like you know pushing my my father uh my my dad harder on you know what i think needed to change and trying to get that and executing on that i mean i i really felt like we could have had a 50 million dollar business and it, it you know we were like right there it's like I always felt we were right on the line, right? We just like couldn't lift up our foot to 
lost it. And, you know, for me, that's kind of like really the only regret. I, you know, I think we could have had this crazy large company that could have sold for even more money than what we got. But, you know, looking back at it and now that I'm, you know, in my new career, I'm so much you know, more into sales and trying to get people to, uh, or, you know, convince people to take actions and whatnot. It's, uh, I feel like I could have done that way better. So I guess uh, for anybody, you know, all, all your listeners, especially people who are in family business situations, I, I mean, I think you need to be very clear about what you want and communicating that to, you know, the rest of your family and, and, and determining if it's doable. Because you know what, I think my situation is not uncommon. Um, I think it's, um, (laughs) and it's hard for me to, you know, I didn't realize my situation was not uncommon until I like went to school and actually, you know, my MBA was in small and family business management, right? So I read about all this, you know, it's like uh, reading my own biography over and over. Is it therapeutic or do you get pissed at your situation? Because, like, I same thing. That's why I've been doing this for the last five years. Like, what the heck happened, man? <laughs> yeah, no, it is therapeutic because I think a lot of people feel like they're trapped and, like, they got such a unique situation. And when reality, it's not. I actually, uh, I think I read something like 30% of, um, you know, family businesses, they wound up, you know, the kids don't want to take it over for whatever reason. Or maybe it's... um only 30% of family businesses get taken over by the next generation. I think it's like 30% transition to the next generation. And then like 8% and 2%. I don't remember what it is, but it's like, it's crazy small. And I, I do believe you're right, John. I mean, it's like, it's, there's this whole big argument or like, you know, really big confusion, ambiguity around, okay, there's W2 salaries, then there's ownership and those are different. Right. And then there's the family estate versus sweat equity and like there's all this stuff that can be cleared up, but you have to have hard conversations. Right. I mean, so many family businesses, they, you know, whether it's your aunt or, you know, other people, they just like kind of slot them in over to the corner to make people feel good instead of addressing the family needs, um, the family businesses needs. And there's a really good book for the, for the listeners. Um, I I interviewed him to circle back or even for you, John, it's called uh, every family's business. I think it's mm-hmm. by Tom Deans. And he literally just said every single family business should sell. <laughs> so like the, <laughs> the kids, the kids should either buy it at fair market value or, and there's a lot of reasonings behind that. Cause I think there's, there's a lot of reasons you shouldn't do that too for tax planning. But anyways, it's just, you're right. I mean, like there's just emotion just gets so, so involved. And it's in like, like almost like you said, it's, it's, at some point you're just like, screw it, man. It's not worth it. Cause I'm going to go, I'm going to go certifiably insane. <laughs> Yeah, so I think the key with family business is you just, there can't be any gray area. Like if you give people roles, you got to let them, you know, run with it and you got to be, but there's got to be clear expectations as well. Um, I think, you know, I think when you, if you're the owner and you've got family members, if you, if you just do whatever you want, I mean, that just sets a poor standard for everybody else, right? Well, then no one knows whether they're succeeding or failing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I think it's uh, there should be for every role in any business, not just family. There should be expectations. There should be KPIs. You know, it's like what are the goals in that role? What are you doing? How are you going to get there? I mean, all, all that needs to be ironed out and clear and transparent. Because um, if not, it just it just muddies the water. And, it, and you know what? That that comes that trickles down through like, like the whole organization, right? 
Um, mm-hmm. Like with, that's what happened with my family business. Some of these managers who had stuck around under my father for you know all these years, like over time, they just got so complacent that they just like didn't give a shit and. Mm-hmm. and Basically, and I come in right as a young kid, and I'm like, and I'm questioning, well, what the hell is this guy doing, and why, you know, why are we paying him over? Why are we even paying him? Why does he even have a job? I don't know. I don't know what the hell he's doing, but he isn't providing value. But then, if you if you look at that guy's argument, you know, he could say, well, your father isn't giving me direction, which you know was true. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I think important for any business, right, to have those. Uh, Lines Not to go down some rabbit hole, but uh, John, when I started in the business, there was no org chart for 110 people. Yeah. <laughs> what do you do? I don't know. <laughs> like, so till, uh, before we wrap up, what, is, what do you tell the listeners what you're doing now to help people uh, kind of in the situations that we've both been in? Yeah. So, you know, I actually moved and got my new careers on doing a, um, I'm working in M&A with a digital brokerage. So we fo- our focus is software as a service businesses. And uh, we also work with e-commerce, Amazon stores, uh, really any online business. And, you know, I've actually taken, uh, my, I mean, my approach to this is constantly evolving because I've only been doing it now about five months. But for me, I'm trying just to become this, you know, ultimate resource for business owners, um, even though, I make the money on the exit with the M&A, you know, I'm meeting people at all stages of business, startups, growth stage, uh, maybe they're struggling. And um, for me, it's, you know, I want to be a connector, right? I want to help you find the right resource to get you out of the funk you're in or get you to the next stage. Um, So that's where I've really been focused on building my network, meeting people like yourself and, you know, other people that can help with the exit and growth and, you know, people that can help with the startup phase or, you know, you need an outsourced sales and marketing team or, um, you know, I met this girl who does customer journey optimization, which is a great thing. So that's fun. So that's what, where I'm kind of for the listeners to get in touch with you. Yeah, certainly, you know, you can hit me up on LinkedIn. Uh, my URL is LinkedIn session slash SaaS business broker. Um, you can email me at john.carudi at digitalacquisitions.co. Um, and you know, I'm happy to ha- I'm happy to chat. And really, anybody that's in the uh, online space, if you got a business, let's talk now because I certainly can give you some insight on what your, you know, a real valuation is. This is another thing that's been driving me nuts. So many people are out of touch of what their company is worth today. And so I think I- I've been kind of doing this new thing now, where it's like let's reverse engineer your exit, right? Mm-hmm. Let's look at what your valuation is today. Let's look at, well, sorry, let's look at what you want to leave the business with, right? You want to leave the business with a million dollars in your pocket, all right? Let's reverse engineer that, uh, you know, let's consider all the fees, the taxes, you know, where your business needs to be from a valuation standpoint um, and figure that out. And then this is, you know, probably a few years out, but then, okay, what can we fill in between that time to help you get there? that number where your business needs to be um speaking my language brother <laughs> exactly you know let's put the let's put the, let, I'm, I'm happy to put together at least an overview of what a plan should be to get you that exit three to five years down the road and then they can connect with somebody like you to actually implement it right i love it john thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your story man i appreciate it very much yeah i had a, i had a very fun time appreciate you uh 
reaching out to me and uh, let's keep the conversation rolling. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you're in a family business, you probably can relate with a handful of those stories that we went back and forth on. My big takeaway is implement some sort of accountability in your business, regardless of your family business. Put in traction EOS or some sort of Rockefeller habits or OKR, something where there's an accountability chart, KPIs, and very clear expectations for employees, regardless of whether they're family or normal employees, because people don't know how to judge themselves or what to actually expect if they have no idea what they're going to be held accountable for. So if you have clear expectations of everybody, then the next big piece is clean up and separate the family estate from the family business. There is the difference between ownership and W-2 salaries. So in the example of his aunt and his dad, there's 100% easy ways if you've got the growth nexa planners like us to decouple the business and the estate and ownership versus W-2 salaries. So that way, Everybody can get what they want, and people don't just have to stay in the business because they are begging for the family estate when that business eventually liquidates, if it ever does liquidate. So cleaning up those different technical aspects will immediately reduce tension and conflict because everybody knows what's at stake for themselves and for the bigger picture for the family and for the business. So if you have any questions on this, go on the GEXP Collaborative's website, reach out to me at ryan at gexpcollaborative.com, or take our 25-question, five-section, multiple-choice quiz that aligns all of your thoughts and where you're at in the five different principles to figure out whether you have the right vision, your right financial targets, the right exit options, your value drivers, and your team locked and loaded and ready so you can pull the ripcord whenever you want. If you enjoyed this episode, please go on iTunes, give me a rating, huge pain in the butt, and I know, I know... It's a lot of work when you have a lot of other stuff going on, but I appreciate it because it allows me to get really good guests on and provide you with more content. So with that being said, I hope you enjoy the day and I will see you next week.